Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. morning, everybody. Uh, What a great day it is. I know that we've got some visitors from down south, and we're hoping they enjoy our natural air conditioning, um, because it is brutal down there, as as they know better than anybody. But um, wow, this is is such a great, but kind of a mixed, sad Sunday. This is our last Gen Senders Sunday, and they have been so awesome. We love you guys. Thank you so much for everything you've done not just serving us, but pouring into us. It's been great. I also want to thank everyone who came in on setup this morning, and specifically David Lewis, because we had a flood in the back janitor closet this morning, and it poured water down into the lower level. Um, And they cleaned up. And it's not even our building, so we appreciate you so much for doing what you did. Um, My name's Matt Harris. I am one of the elders here at City on Hill Forest Hills. And I'm just so pleased and privileged to be here uh, sharing the word with you today. As you know, the Costellos are on sabbatical, um, and we do pray that they are enjoying and being fed and being refreshed as we speak here. Stephen mentioned that the last few Sundays, we've sort of dismissed our youngins early because the sermon was a little spicy. Okay? Yeah, exactly. This is family friendly, okay? We don't have spiciness of that nature in today's message. Um, So that's good. Also, you may have, um, I'm preaching today on Genesis 40 and 41. Uh, Joshua, thank you, did a great job uh, preaching. Well, soon he's going to be a preacher, I'm pretty sure, but on reading our scripture for us. But we took a subset of it because it's pretty long. now, I'm, since Stephen's away, he's our A preacher. I'm our C-level preacher, so I do two chapters. Matt next week is doing four chapters, so he's got to be the B-level preacher. Um, so pray for him as he prepares to preach on 42 through 46 next Sunday. Um, but the book of Genesis is pretty fascinating, I think. It's 50 chapters long, okay, and... Two of those chapters, the very beginning, deal with the creation story. One chapter, just one, deals with the fall of man. These are two pretty massive things in our past and in our makeup. Two chapters and one chapter. Then he starts expanding. He, and Moses wrote 11 chapters on Abraham. Joseph, who we're speaking about for these past few weeks, there are 13 chapters in Genesis written about Joseph. Um, And I find that interesting because, well, as you know, Joseph is kind of a well-known story, right? There's even even like movies and plays and theater about Joseph. We've got Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and we've got Joseph, King of Dreams. So everyone who has access to a movie theater or a DVD player can, can go in and get a little bit of a taste of who this guy is. And, okay, I want... I want you to admit honestly, who else, and you don't have to raise your hand, but I'll tell you this, for me, I actually at one point thought that Joseph was in the line 
in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, he's so important. There's so many, so much written about him. And I'm thought, oh, well, yeah, you've got, you know, Abraham, Moses, and David, and Joseph's in there somewhere. Well, he's actually not. Joseph is not in the genealogy of Jesus. His older brother Judah is. Um, so that was my confession of biblical illiteracy to you right there. So if you want to leave, this is a good time. Um, okay, there goes Lindsay. Okay. No, uh, Matthew 1, the genealogy begins. I won't read the whole thing. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. That's where Joseph's mentioned, and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. So Joseph's not in the list. But we have to ask, what's so important about Joseph that 13 chapters were written about him? So let's dig into chapters 40 and 41 a little bit here to help us understand. But first, I know Joshua did a great job of bringing us to the throne in prayer, but I need to pray as well. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity this week um, and the graciousness of uh, people around me to allow me to soak in your word and in prayer and be prepared, I hope, to, to share these words, Lord. Make these words yours. Get me out of the way. Help me, uh, help me be clear, concise, and uh, help your word transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the main point I want to bring about today is kind of two. Here's a little bit of a downer. This is about suffering. Joseph suffered. He was in prison. He was sold as a slave. He suffered. Um, but suffering is part of the human condition. We all suffer. It's part, of, it's part of being human. We can't avoid it. If you think your life will go through you'll go from birth to death and you won't suffer, then it's, it's just not going to happen that way. But also these chapters help us to prepare to know that our suffering can bring fruitfulness. Not in a measured sense, but suffering equips us. Suffering challenges us and grows us. So much of these two chapters, 40 and 41, talk about dreams. And I think that I'm not going to focus so much on the specificness of these dreams, but I want to talk about, as we get a little bit further, I want to try to shine a light on the similarity between Joseph and Jesus and how their lives walked in a similar pattern. But back in the you know, 1900 years before Christ, dreams were essentially viewed as foretelling the future. They were like they were like watching the news. You would get wake up and you would tell someone your dream and someone would interpret it and then everyone would know what was going to happen. This is how they felt about dreams. You remember back in Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder, right? Jacob wrestled with God and then Jacob saw a ladder going up in heaven with angels ascending and descending. This was really cri critical to him. And also Joseph had his own dreams back in chapter 37. His dreams caused a little bit of a stir in the family, though. If you remember, in his dream, all of his brothers were sheaves of wheat bound up. And he was also a sheave of wheat, but his brothers bowed down, the sheaves bowed down to his sheave. Similarly, he had a second dream. And in that second dream, his brothers were all stars in the sky. And those stars bowed down to, Jake, to Joseph as well. So... 
In the second dream, the, Joseph was really Jacob's favorite child, right? He was kind of the golden-haired boy, though I don't really believe he had blonde hair. Um, then we go a little bit further into chapter 40, and we hear about the cupbearer and the baker. So you're probably familiar with that story, but the cupbearer and the baker were thrown into prison. These were high officials serving the Pharaoh in Egypt. Now, some translations use the word butler instead of cupbearer. But cupbearer is pretty clear what this guy does. Yes, he has the cup of wine that he hands to the Pharaoh, but he's essentially like being in the secret service for the Pharaoh. He was responsible for security in the palace. He wanted to know, he needed to know whether the wine he held that he was going to give to the Pharaoh was poison. He tasted the wine. I don't know how he got over the, what happened if it was poison. They don't really talk about that. But he was responsible that the wine and the food and the people who were in the audience of the Pharaoh were safe for the Pharaoh. So the cupbearer and the baker, they had these dreams. In the cupbearer's dream, he envisioned this vine with three branches. And on those branches grew and blossomed grapes. And the cupbearer would take the grapes in his dream and he would squeeze them into the Pharaoh's cup and he would have them like wine or juice in the cup. Baker's dream was a little different. The baker dreamt that there were three baskets on his head and the birds were eating food out of the baskets. Well, they, they couldn't figure out what their dreams meant. So when they woke up, they went to Joseph, who was in the prison with them, and they asked Joseph to interpret these dreams. And there was a commonality in both of the dreams, right? The number three, three vines, three baskets. Joseph informed the cupbearer and the baker that in three days, they would be released from prison. Yay. That's really good news for the cupbearer, because what we find is that the cupbearer returned and restored to his role as head of security and wine tasting in the palace. The baker, on the other hand, is executed. So the cupbearer is rehired and the baker retired. But Joseph, before the cupbearer left, because he had given him such good news, he asked the cupbearer, please, please, when you get out, Remember me to Pharaoh. Tell him that I interpreted your dreams favorably. Tell him what a good job I'm doing here. I'm responsible for everything that goes on inside the, the prison here. So the royal agents, they get released, and they're brought back into the Pharaoh. One's exalted. One is hung. It's not good for the, the baker. But the, the, the cupbearer completely forgets to mention Joseph to the Pharaoh. He just ignores him. He gets his robes back on. He starts tasting Pinot Noirs, and he forgets Joseph. A couple of years go by, and you've got to realize that Joseph's already been in prison for a couple of years, and now a couple more years go by. I'm thinking about four years total he was in prison. So the Pharaoh himself has some troubling dreams, and he told them to his magicians and his wise men, and none of them could interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh. So he insisted that someone be found who could interpret the dreams. So 
In Genesis 41, 14, it says, the Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before the Pharaoh. And And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered the Pharaoh and said, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So finally, Joseph gets the news he's been waiting for. The jailer comes to him and says, you're going to be released. And so he, he gets out of prison. He goes to the barber. He gets, a, he gets his hair cut. He goes to TJ Maxx. He gets all gussied up, and he goes in before the Pharaoh. So the Pharaoh tells Joseph about his dreams. In the Pharaoh's dreams, he had two dreams. In the first dream, out of the Nile came these seven plump, healthy cows, and they walked up, and they're, they're parading around, and they're eating, and they're grazing. Immediately after the seven healthy cows comes up out of the Nile come these seven sickly, emaciated, gaunt cows, and they come up behind the seven healthy cows, and they eat. The sickly, skinny cows eat the fat, plump, healthy cows. That's his first dream. In his second dream, there's this stock of corn, And on this stock of corn, there are seven healthy ears of corn. It's a great time to eat corn, by the way. You you go and you peel it back and you get the ones that are all full and the rows are all even. And then occasionally you get one, you pull it back and it's like missing teeth. It looks like a pumpkin in Halloween. So the first seven were the healthy, full, full rowed ears of corn. And then after that, there was a stock that grew that was seven sickly, teeth-missing, gross-looking ears of corn. And the sickly corn ate the healthy corn. So in Genesis 41, 25, it says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Here's Joseph boldly interpreting dreams for the most powerful man in the known world. It continues on in verse 29. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. The doubling is interesting. Even Jesus used this technique. Remember, Jesus would say, truly, truly, I tell you. He would repeat himself when he really wanted to emphasize and make sure that people understand this is going to happen. But what happens next? Talk about bold. Joseph was inform- has in- just informed Pharaoh of this existential threat that's right on the horizon. And thinking fast, he comes up with a brilliant solution.
Joseph continued in 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let the Pharaoh know, let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and make one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all of the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities. And let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the Pharaoh, through the famine. And Pharaoh is very pleased with this. And he says, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set, all, set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. Wait, what? This guy's in prison just a day ago. This guy spent the last oh, 16 years as a slave and as a servant. And now he's being elevated to essentially prime minister of Egypt. No one is more powerful than him other than Pharaoh. Now this would be kind of interesting if it were you or me, if we had found ourselves in that situation. Think of what's happened to Joseph in the last couple of years. Let's see. Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, the cupbearer. He could have had some serious revenge on these people who treated him wrong. But no, he didn't. In his mind, it was God's, God's role to take vengeance, not Joseph's. So let God have vengeance on your enemies. But let's back up a little bit. How, how is it that Joseph, this privileged young man who comes out of Canaan, at the age of 17 becomes a slave and is sold to Egypt, how did he get so wise? How did he get so influential and powerful? People were recognizing him. Potiphar recognized him. The guards at the jail recognized him. Pharaoh recognized him and elevated him. So I think I want to back up to Joseph's upbringing a little bit. He had a pretty sweet deal, right? His father's very wealthy. He had all his older brothers ahead of him who were older and working and raising the sheep and make, having families and taking care of all the work. And here comes Joseph, and he is born into privilege. Um, and he also was his father's favorite. Jo Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was his favorite. Why? Because Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, his favorite wife, the woman he worked 14 years for as an indentured servant himself to win. Rachel was beautiful. She was smart. She was lovely. He was so in love with her. Rachel was Jacob's Barbie. And finally, after years of infertility, Joseph was born. So Joseph was the pride of Jacob. 
And as he grew up and he had his younger brother Benjamin with him, these boys, they would run around and they were the little boys, right? The older Judah and all the 10 that came before him, they were doing all the work. And wouldn't you know, but Jacob decides to take his favorite son and award him this beautiful coat of many colors. This is basically a symbol to all the other brothers that here's the heir apparent. This is the guy we're all going to be following and taking orders from, our little brother, Joseph. And as you know the story from there, Jacob's, uh, Joseph is running his mouth, right? He's telling about dreams of sheaves bowing down to him, and his brothers decided to teach him a lesson. They captured him, beat him, stripped him, and threw him in a pit. And then they sold him as a slave. He was probably dragged out of the pit by his new owners, tied up and towed naked all the way to Egypt, where he was again sold to Potiphar as a household servant. It's pretty bad. Things sort of started to look up a little bit as he's asked by Potiphar, I want you to take care of my household, my gardens, my fields, my home. I want you to take care of it. You're, you're gifted. You're smart. Take care of things here, and things will go well for you. And then things didn't look up so well because Potiphar's wife decides to chase after Joseph. And the result is he's accused of sexual advances that he didn't do, and he's thrown back into prison. And then he gets to prison, and he's given great authority there. The jailkeepers go, hmm, this guy's got some game here. Let's see what he can do about cleaning things up and getting food distributed and keeping the fights down. So he did a pretty good job at that because everything Joseph did, the Lord had him succeed at. Joseph was essentially a prisoner for most of his adult life until 30 when he met the Pharaoh. But how did he become so great? How did he become so capable? How did he excel so quickly? I don't think it was the relationship he had from zero to 17 with his father and his holy brothers. I don't think they, that type of relationship doesn't craft character and integrity. I think it was God. I think it was God in those times when he was in prison, when he was a slave, when he was persecuted, when he was beaten and stripped and sold. I think it was God that was pouring into Joseph, equipping him, building character, building integrity, building wisdom. But it was hard. I mean, Joseph really suffered throughout that time. But in his suffering, it translated into fruitfulness. It translated into his ability to make things happen, to succeed, to gather, gather resources around him and work them and multiply them. He followed God and he trusted God and he prayed to God and he lived out his life in view of, of others this way. He was completely sold out to God. He continuously gave God the glory for all the good things that happened to him. We see in these chapters, Joseph's called to interpret dreams. Well, as we read about those interpretations, they were very, very accurate. We consistently see, though, that Joseph's saying, it wasn't me, it was God. He's the one that gave me those interpretations. He gave glory to God. We're a little different. When things happen well for us, when we get that promotion, when we, when we buy that home, when we finally have that relationship that clicks, we kind of strut around a little bit and think how, how great we are. Wasn't, Joseph didn't do it that way. He, he said, this is from God. He's given it to me. 
But when things go bad, again, we're not like Joseph. When things go bad in our life, sometimes we blame God. Sometimes we say, where were you when I was troubled? Where were you when I was suffering? He's there. So we suffer. It's part of the human condition. But why do we suffer? Pastor and writer A.W. Tozer writes, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. God's preparing you for something great. You can get on board with that. And you can even rejoice in the suffering to know that God is equipping you. And, and uh, you're in a crucible. You're being chastened. You're being purified. The disciples didn't get this either, though, so it's, it's easy to understand why it's hard for us. They, they heard rumors, both from Jesus and from Scripture, that Jesus was going to suffer. They're like, why would God send his son here to suffer? We believe he's God's son. We believe he's the Messiah, but it doesn't make sense that he should suffer. But he told them in Luke 24, 25 through 26, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? Suffering before glory. This is what happened to Jesus. Rejection before acceptance. Humiliation leading to exaltation. Descending into the lowest pit before being raised to the highest pinnacle. Jesus told him this. He says, remember how Joseph was rejected by the sons of Jacob, his brothers. So was I rejected. Remember how Joseph's brothers wouldn't listen to what he said and conspired to kill him. So did my Jewish brothers refuse to listen to me and conspire to kill me. Remember how Joseph left his home of privilege with the father who loved him and became a slave in Egypt. That's what happened to me when I left my father's home in heaven, came to this world taking the form of a servant. Remember how Joseph was eventually exalted to the Pharaoh's right hand and his brothers came and bowed down to him. That is what is ahead for me shortly. I will descend to my father's right hand and the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that I am Lord. Jesus recounted Old Testament teachings where God predicted the suffering for his people. In Genesis 15, it says, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. After that time, we have Paul's teaching on how we are to conform to the image of Jesus, and by implication, his suffering. Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Suffering, fruitfulness. 
Now, I want to compare Jesus and Joseph a little bit. They're not the same. Joseph is not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's, he's someone used by God as a metaphor and as a, as a, as a preteller. So remember, Joseph's in prison with two criminals, the cupbearer, the baker. Jesus is on the cross with two criminals. One of Joseph's brothers in crime, so to speak, is exalted and returned to his role. The other is hung. On the cross, one of the criminals besides Jesus hears from Jesus, today you will be with me in paradise. The other condemned to hell. Here's a list of similarities between Joseph and Jesus that I don't think are a coincidence. Ready? He is the object of his father's special love. He was mocked by his family. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. He was falsely accused. He was faithful amid temptation. He was thrown into prison. He stood before rulers. His power was acknowledged by those in authority. He is exalted after he is humiliated. He embraces God's purpose, even though it brings him intense physical harm. He welcomes Gentiles to be part of his family. He is the instrument God uses at the hands of the Gentiles to bless his people. He gives hungry people bread, and people must bow their knee before him. We have Joseph, but Jesus is the better Joseph. He turns death to life. He frees the captive. He is the bread of life. Now, bread's interesting because during the seven years of abundance that Joseph was overseeing, and then the seven years of famine, he saved up all this grain and he put it in the storehouses. What do you do with grain? You make bread, right? So this is what the Egyptians got to, to eat in the famine. They ate bread. The whole world came to Joseph, it says, for the bread. Jesus is the bread of life. The whole world needs to come to Jesus for the bread of life. Joseph was given a wife who gave him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh refers to forgetfulness or forgetting, and Ephraim refers to fruitfulness. I think the message is that even though Joseph suffered, he could forget and not be embittered to his tormentors, his brothers, Potiphar, others, and that he would be fruitful. So Manasseh and Ephraim are Harbingers. They're in fact, they're songs of praise to God, aren't they? They're like, he's, he's keeping me from being embittered and he's making me fruitful. Thank you, God. So Joseph's suffering was very fruitful. Seven years of abundance, he's in charge, he's taking care of business, he's storing all this grain away. And then seven years of famine and people come to him and he sells the grain and it wasn't an easy time, but it was a lot better than it could have been, right? But Joseph's suffering and subsequent 
fruitfulness, even though they're a foreshadowing of the suffering and fruitfulness of Christ, they're not the same. So in concluding my sermon today, here's the point. Joseph's fruitfulness is far from the equivalent to Jesus's. Jesus's fruitfulness is total and eternal because Jesus's fruitfulness is the ability for us to believe in him by faith, through faith and not by works and to understand that in doing so, we can be unburdened and be saved and, and our salvation is assured. That, and that is all offered to the entire world. Joseph suffered, certainly, but not comparatively more than other people in the world. There were people who suffered worse than Joseph. But Jesus came down from the throne of heaven where he dwelt and ruled with his Father and the Holy Spirit. He entered humanity. He humbled himself. He was belittled, begrudged, berated, bemoaned, beaten, betrayed. He willingly walked through his mock trial all the way to the cross. Because he knew that his suffering and death were the price that needed to be paid for the sins of all mankind. Price. We can't pay that price. You can't pay that price. I can't pay that price. Jesus paid a price he didn't owe because you owe a price you can't pay. Now, not taking anything away from Joseph, as important as it was for him to facilitate the feeding during the famine, his fruitfulness just doesn't compare to the eternal salvation of all mankind. And in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Just as Joseph enabled this bread to be provided, Jesus is the one to whom the whole world must come for the bread of life. Jesus willingly suffered so that you, could be part of his fruitfulness. All of you who have turned your life over to Christ, you are part of that eternal abundance of fruitfulness. So if you've not claimed Jesus as your Lord, maybe you're thinking, I just got to get a few things in order. I just got to clean myself up a little bit got to take care of this, and then I'll be more acceptable to him. I'm sorry, but that's insulting. It's as if you say, if I, just, if I do this part and clean this part of my life up, and I'm more now acceptable to God, it's as if to say that Jesus' death was not sufficient. It's as if to say that, well, yeah, it must have been hard, and he did a lot for people, but didn't cover this sin or it didn't cover that sin. Well, that's insulting because it was sufficient. Jesus' death covers all sin. There's nothing that you need to do to clean yourself up before you're acceptable to God because he loves you just the way you are. So come as you are. And if you're on the edge you're like, yeah, I, I see that, and I've, and I got these questions. It's like science, evolution, this, that, resurrection. If you've got questions, guess what? So do I. I got questions. 
They don't have all the answers. I, I don't think anyone does. The most fervent believer, author, pastor, writer, theologian have questions. It doesn't keep them from seeing the truth and putting their trust by faith in God. And if you're suffering, me too. There are things about my life that I wish were not. And, and that was kind of a late observation of mine. I kind of went through quite a few years, okay, decades, where I just thought, wow, this is really great. You know? Got a, got a coat of many colors from my dad. Married an amazing woman. Got a job. Got a sailboat. Like, this is really great. I knew in the back of my head that there was going to be a shooter drop. I just didn't know what it was, but I knew it was there. Yeah, I know what it is now. There's suffering in my life, but there's also joy in knowing that Jesus paid for my sin. There's joy in knowing that He feels the pain that I do and more. So that suffering doesn't consume me.